Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. This is the first episode of a series I call How to Create a Better Investment and Retirement Portfolio. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at the basics of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, index funds, the stock market, and so on, but we're going to amp them up. We're not just going to talk about the basics. We're going to take the basics and go beyond. We're going to discuss how they work, what we can expect from them, and basic sort of metrics to look at for us to get started. So to begin, we're just going to go right into it and discuss stocks. Now, this is something all of us have heard in the media, friends, everyone's talking about the latest stocks, what stocks to pick. We've heard of Apple, Google, and so on. But what is a stock? Well, a stock is a certificate of ownership in a company. And what does that mean? It means you actually own a piece of the company when you own stock. And the unit of stock is called a share. So if we're saying we're going to buy stocks, we're actually buying shares in a company or companies. Now, if you own at least one share in a company, you're a shareholder. This makes you part owner in the company. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So for $82, you can own a piece of Facebook. That's like Zuckerberg status. I mean, one share means you own 0.000000036% of Facebook, and Zuckerberg owns about 20%, but screw it, we're also cooler, we got more swag. So I just put out seven zeros and 36%, so that's how much you own a Facebook. You own a very small amount. But the next question you may be wondering is, how did I even come up with that number? And the idea is, is that Each company out there breaks up their companies into shares. They break them up into little tiny pieces. And as we mentioned, when you buy those shares or stock, you own a piece of the company. So each company has something they call outstanding shares. These are the total number of shares that make up a company. In Facebook's example, they have approximately 2.8 billion outstanding shares. They have 2.8 billion pieces that make up their company. So if you bought all of those shares, you would theoretically own 100% of the company. Now, since we only bought one share of Facebook, we divide one by 2.8 billion, and that's where I got that ridiculously small percent of Facebook that we would own. While we're on this topic, you've also probably heard of things like Facebook being a $200 billion company. And I remember when I first started investing, I always wondered, where are they getting these numbers out of? They're just throwing random numbers out. Like I get Facebook is big, but $200 billion big? Well, there is actually a mathematical and accounting explanation for this. So you know how we discussed Facebook is broken up into $2.8 billion pieces? Well, what if we could figure out the value of one of those pieces? Then we could take the number of pieces times the value and we get the value of the company. We actually can figure out how much each of those pieces or shares are worth. And we can do this by when we look up a stock on Tingo or Yahoo Finance, we see the price of the company. And as of right now, which is March 5th, approximately around March 5th, 2015, we see Facebook is trading around $81 a share. And we know they're 2.8 billion shares. And if we own all 2.8 billion, we own 100% of the company. So if we take $81 and multiply it by 2.8 billion, we see Facebook is valued at around $225 billion. And typically on financial websites, you'll see it as market capitalization. On Tingo and a lot of other financial sites like Yahoo Finance, it's often abbreviated as market cap. This is actually a theme you're going to see. Investors and people in general like ourselves, we like to abbreviate things. So um, throughout 
this podcast and throughout this series, I'll often say a metric and then how we abbreviate it. Okay, so before we move on away from companies, I want to talk about one really important thing, and that's called a dividend. Now, imagine you own a company and you may have more cash than you need. So just imagine it. Imagine you're like super rich, have a ton of cash, and you don't know what to do with it. Well, wouldn't you want to get paid for owning that company? I mean, after all, CEOs, management, the COO, the CTO, they all pay themselves salaries. So shouldn't you get paid because you own a piece of the company? And it would be nice to get income too. I mean, after all, management gets income. Well, that's the concept of a dividend. So it's the cash you receive just for holding the company. Because by holding that company, you're taking a risk. So typically, a dividend is paid out once a quarter or once every three months. Now, a dividend yield is simply taking the total dividends paid out in the last year and dividing it by the share price. Now, typically, dividends are paid in cash, so it's a cash dividend. And you take, you sum up the cash, how much cash was paid out in dividends for the past year, you sum them up, and you divide it by the share price. And this gives you a percent, something called a dividend yield. So when you see dividend, you may see a number, and that's the cash dividend, and then you may see a percent, and that's what percent that cash dividend represents. Now, the reason things are reported in percentages is typically when you invest in something or any type of asset, you want to know what percent return they give you. It's like when you get a loan, a mortgage, or your credit card, they tell you the interest rate. They tell you the percent. And that is the percent that you will pay. For the bank, it's a percent of how much they'll make. So that's the idea. Now, if you go to a bank and you put money in a savings account or a checking account, a bank may give you one-tenth of a percent or 0.1% if you're lucky. But let's look at the dividend yield of Apple. We see that we get paid 1.5% cash just for holding Apple. I mean, that's a lot higher. That's 15 times higher than a bank would get paid. you would get paid by a bank in this scenario. So shouldn't you put all your money away from a bank and into Apple and just collect that dividend? I mean, Apple's a big company. It's a multi-billion dollar company. It's the biggest in the, in the market. Well, what if Apple drops 5%? I'm guessing you won't really care if it gives you a 1.5% dividend because you're down 5%. Now, since you were down, the stock was down 5% and you made 1.5% on the dividend, you're overall down 3.5%. And likewise, if, it goes up five, if Apple goes up 5%, you're now up 6.5% because you can add the dividend onto that. And that's because when you're holding Apple or a stock, you're taking risk. And that's why dividends paid by companies are typically higher than you would get at a bank. Now, once again, why do companies pay dividends and why should you care? So the assumed investing knowledge says that if stock goes up and you get paid a dividend, it's better for your portfolio because it helps stabilize things. Like if Apple goes down 5%, you're actually only down 3.5% because, as we mentioned, that dividend helps cushion the blow. And if you go up 5%, then you're actually up 6.5% because the dividend gets added onto the return. And the reason companies pay it is they don't really know what else to do with all the earnings they have. I mean, that's the frank answer, and, and you may hear some other things, but typically that's the reason why. Think of it as like when you get paid from doing your job or from going to work. You put some money away towards savings, retirement, vacation, mortgages, etc., etc. But what do you do with the money you have left over? You enjoy it. And that's what a dividend is. So there are a few more nuances with dividends we'll touch upon in a couple episodes from now, but we've sort of said a lot. And let's just take a moment to pause. It's a lot of information at once. Okay, I got bored. Uh, that's enough pausing. So, there are thousands and thousands of stocks out there, but how are they organized? 
Well, each stock can be traded on something you've probably heard of called a stock exchange. A couple examples are the New York Stock Exchange, or NYSE, or the NASDAQ. So on these exchanges, you can buy and sell stocks because shares are uh, very standardized. They're very standardized unified documents across each company. For example, share number 2500 isn't going to be much different than share number 543,221. It's just really a difference of share number. So to you, it shouldn't really matter which share you have because when it comes to owning a company, all shares are going to be equal. Now, the caveat to this is the shares that are traded on exchanges are going to be equal. And there's some nuances we'll get to in a few moments. But for the most part, when you're trading stocks on an exchange, they are called exchange traded and they are unified and they represent the same ownership as another share you could trade on an exchange. So this is why something like a share can be traded on exchanges because they are unified and they're standardized across the company. So we've talked a lot about companies, we've talked about how you can measure certain metrics, and we've talked about how they're organized on exchanges. But what about things like you often hear in the news, the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq Composite? Now keep in mind the Nasdaq Composite is different than the Nasdaq Exchange we just mentioned. So you often hear these things like the Dow was down 300 points today and it's all over CNBC, everyone's going crazy, like down 500 points, up 300 points. But what does that actually mean? So the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, each one of those is called a stock index and together they're called stock indices. So they're a measure of the stock market and are useful as a general measure of the health of economies. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ composite are all comprised of a grab bag of different companies and they're all trying to measure the broad market or a market segment. So typically they're sort of used as proxies to see how the health of an economy is doing. So if the S&P and the Dow are said to be up or down 3%, it means the market is getting stronger or weaker by 3%. They're very important measures for policymakers, government agencies, corporations, and actually for your retirement investment portfolios. So it's a way to see how the general market is doing. Now let's touch upon the most common ones you hear about. So the first is called the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or oftentimes you hear it just the Dow for short. It's made up of about 30 very large stable companies that represent different sectors. For example, a few stocks in the Dow you've probably heard of are Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, Coca-Cola, Verizon, Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, and McDonald's. And before we get into the S&P, let's talk about a couple major flaws that are present in the Dow. Or these are things professionals often see as big flaws in the Dow. So the first major flaw with using the Dow index is that it's only 30 big companies, which means it doesn't really represent the broad market. I mean, you have thousands of companies traded on stock exchanges, all different sizes. Why would 30 of the very largest, most stable really represent the economy? Now the second is a little bit more nuanced, and we're going to get a little technical, so bear with me, but this is a big reason why a lot of people criticize the Dow. So the Dow index is what we call price weighted. Now what that means is in an index, each stock represents a portion of the index. So the Dow is 30 large companies, so each of those 30 companies represents the Dow index value. So when something is price weighted, it means that the price determines how much of the index it makes up. For example, if the Dow was only 10 stocks and each stock was $10 a share, they would all represent 10% of the Dow. Now, here's the odd part 
and a bigger and this is the actual reason why people consider the DAO and the price weighting to be flawed. Is that remember how we discussed that Facebook was worth $225 billion? Remember how we came to that value? We took the number of different shares, the number of different pieces of Facebook out there, and we multiplied them by how much each piece was worth, $81 a share. And that's how we got it. And Facebook had 2.8 billion pieces. So let's just ignore the 2.8 billion pieces and just look at the share price. So what a price weighting does is it just looks at the share price. So Facebook share price was $81 a share. Now, what about the price of a company like Chipotle? Right now, Chipotle is trading at $670 a share. But if we look at the number of shares available in Chipotle, it's only about 30 million. And remember, Facebook was 2.8 billion. So to get the value of Chipotle, to get the market cap or the value of the company, we take the 30 million pieces of Chipotle, we times them by how much each piece is worth, $670, and we see Chipotle is approximately worth $20 billion. So Chipotle is worth $20 billion, Facebook is worth $225 billion. Uh, Chipotle is worth less than 10% of Facebook, but its share price is eight times bigger than Facebook. So in the Dow, Chipotle would have eight times the presence, eight times the weighting in the index. Now, the share price doesn't represent the value of the company. To consider how big a company is, we have to consider how many shares there are, and we have to consider the price. But if you remove the shares, you're just looking at the price. So when you're looking at prices of companies, when the price of a company is greater, that doesn't mean the company is bigger. For example, we saw Facebook is literally almost more than 10 times bigger than Chipotle. Yet Chipotle has a share price that's eight times greater because Chipotle made a decision to break up their company into not as many small pieces. So the Dow, once again, is saying Chipotle would have eight times the presence in the index makeup than Facebook, even though it's one-tenth the size. This is a huge flaw and it's because of the way it's price weighted. But let's go on to the S&P 500. This is a metric uh, many professionals end up using. So the S&P 500, instead of using price weighting, uses something we call value weighted or capitalization weighted. So in the S&P 500, Facebook is 10 times bigger than Chipotle because according to the S&P, we're looking at 225 billion compared to 20 billion for Chipotle. We're not looking at $81 a share versus $670 a share for Chipotle. Now to a lot of professionals and myself and probably you at this point, it seems to make a lot more sense to use how big a company is rather than what the share price is. And the second point is, is that the S&P 500 represents 500 stocks in the markets, whereas the Dow is 30. So for those two reasons, especially those two reasons, professionals consider the S&P a better measure of the stock market compared to the Dow. Now the next index we often hear about is the NASDAQ. Remember how the NASDAQ was an exchange? It's also an index, and that's called the NASDAQ composite. Now the NASDAQ composite is an index made up of over 3,000 stocks that are traded on the NASDAQ exchange. The NASDAQ exchange was actually the first exchange, the first big exchange that allowed online trading. And because of this, many tech companies moved onto the NASDAQ exchange, which means many tech companies are in the NASDAQ composite. So oftentimes we see the NASDAQ composite is, very asso is associated with a tech-heavy feel. There are a lot more tech companies in the NASDAQ composite. That's how people see it. Now, the, I want to bring up one more exchange that you don't really hear about too much in the news, 
And it's a, it's a pretty important measure for one reason. It re represents something the other stock indi indices don't. And that's the Russell 2000. So the Russell 2000 represents 2000 of the smaller publicly traded companies. Whereas the S&P 500 represents 500 larger companies, also known as large capitalization or large cap. The Russell 2000 represents 2000 smaller companies, otherwise known as smaller capitalization or small cap. So remember, the market capitalization refers to the size of the company. So large cap, big companies, small cap, smaller companies. In Facebook's case, it was $225 billion for market cap, and Chipotle was $20 billion. These would both be considered large cap companies. So the Russell 2000 gives a general indication of the health of smaller companies. So now that we've done a pretty thorough discussion or a pretty thorough introduction to stocks, how they're traded, how to measure the health of the economy, let's move on to bonds. Bonds! All right, I'm trying to add some excitement to bonds, but let's just go on to bonds. So with stocks, when you own shares, you are investing in the company. When you buy bonds from a company, you are lending them money. You are a lender. So if you own stocks, you're an investor. And if you own a bond, you're a lender. When you take out a mortgage or a loan, the bank is a lender. And when you buy a bond, you are lending money to a company or the federal government or a local government. So when you get a loan from a bank, as you know, you pay an interest rate. Or when you go to a credit card company, they give you an interest rate. Likewise, when you buy a bond, since you're being the lender, you get paid interest just like the bank does when they loan you out money. So a bond is broken up into sort of two sort of payments, generally. You have the principal amount, which is the amount of money you lent the company or government, and the interest, which you get compensated for for lending out that money. On top of this, like a mortgage or a loan, the bond matures and the debt no longer exists once it reaches what we call maturity. This is like when you get a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, or if you take out a personal loan for, let's say, a set amount of years. Now, this is another key difference from stocks, because stocks don't have an end date. They exist as long as the company exists. And on this note, let's talk a little bit about bankruptcy. Now, bankruptcy is obviously not the most fun thing to talk about, but since when you're investing or you're lending out something, it's a real risk you should be aware of. Now, if a company goes into bankruptcy and liquidates, you as a bondholder are first entitled toward the company's assets to get back your loan. Only after the bondholders are taken care of do stockholders get what's left. Because of this, bonds are generally considered safer investments than stocks. It's a liability for a company. Now, a common concept you'll see throughout investing is that something that is higher risk should give you the opportunity for a higher reward. So if you are investing in a new company that just formed a week ago, you could probably assume it has a higher risk than, let's say, a company like uh, McDonald's. So if McDonald's came up to you versus a new store that opened a week ago, who would you expect to have a higher risk? Now, people generally want to be paid for that risk. So if it's a higher risk, you'll ask for a higher interest rate. Whereas McDonald's may get a loan for 3.5%, you may charge the new store 6% because you may perceive it as being riskier. Now, banks actually do the same thing with us when we go to them with a loan request. They perceive our risk and they charge us different interest rates. The difference is, is that as individuals, we each have something called a credit score, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. That credit score determines whether or not 
we can get a loan, and if we do, what risk the lender sees in us. And if they think we're higher risk, they'll charge us a higher interest rate. Now, all of us are familiar with credit checks because probably most of us have opened up a credit card or subscribed to cable or internet. And when you do that, they do a credit check because they want to see what risk they're dealing with. Now, if we're a higher risk as determined by a low credit score, they'll charge us a higher interest rate. So people who issue bonds have something similar, and they call it a credit rating. They give credit ratings to companies or governments. There are a few companies who give these ratings, and they're called ratings agencies. They're in the business of evaluating and scoring companies and governments to determine what their risk is. Whereas an individual like me or you may have a credit score that's, let's say, 600, 700, or 800, a rating agency will give different metrics. And the typical ratings are AAA, which is the highest possible rating, AA, which is the second highest, single A, which is the third highest, and then you do the same sort of thing from triple B to B, and then you have triple C. Now, typically double B or below, it's considered a junk bond, and that just means it's a very high risk bond. Basically, that just means there's a higher likelihood that if you own a double B bond or below, that you may not get your money back if you lend to them. And because there is this higher risk, it's a what people call a junk bond, you should be compensated more for taking on that risk. So junk bond yields are typically higher because of this risk. Now, I know a common question I had when I was first starting to understand bonds is, well, if a company like Ford goes bankrupt, there are a ton of assets you can take from them. But what do you do if a country goes bankrupt? Can you just like go in and take the country's stuff? Um, turns out, as I got into industry, I realized this is actually a pretty complicated topic. But the big risk to a, com- to a country defaulting, and defaulting means it fails to pay its bond, or it goes into, you know, goes into bankruptcy or something like that, that doesn't mean you can invade the country. <laughs> what it does mean when a country does do that is that the country is going to have a much, much harder time raising money next time around they go into debt markets and try to raise money. They've essentially lost their reputation. So when you're buying bonds from a country, you're doing it on the, what people like to say, the quote, full faith and credit, unquote, of that country. And this is why it's a huge deal if a country defaults. And actually, right now there's a big case going on. Um, By right now, I mean right now it's March 2015. There's a big case going on between Argentina and a hedge fund. So Argentina defaulted on its debt for a second time since 2001. And a hedge fund refused to accept less money for the bonds than what it felt like it was owed. It refused to restructure the debt. And so the hedge fund took them to court, to a U.S. court, and the U.S. court said Argentina couldn't pay any new bondholders until it paid the hedge funds first. As in it couldn't pay the interest to new bondholders until it paid what it owed the hedge fund first. The hedge fund also actually tried to impound the country's warships, but of course it's a very difficult thing to do, and so this type of case has opened up a lot of questions, and not just sort of legal questions, financial questions, but also ethical questions. And it's turning into a messy case, and it really makes us question, well, can one country hold another country, quote, financially hostage, unquote? Can a hedge fund or any other person who feels like they're owed money Um, as per an obligation the country made, can that sort of organization try to interfere how the country governs? And there's so much money being poured into this. And ideally, it's better to put yourself in a situation where you can avoid this. Um, Like I said, a lot of people trying to figure this out right now. 
You know, having said all this, there are some nuances about credit ratings, and a lot of these firms in charge of rating bonds came under flack in 2008. This is because a lot of people argue, and I would say it's a pretty widespread <laughs> agreement, that a lot of these credit rating agencies misrated their bonds. They didn't fully understand the risk, so they gave AAA ratings to things that maybe should have been double B or junk status. Anyway, so they've come out under a lot of flack for this, but this is really a complex topic that we may speak about in a future episode. So now that we've explained what a bond is, how they are generally priced, and how they're rated, let's talk about how they're organized. Now, as individual investors like me and you, you probably are not going to personally trade bonds. This is because there are many, many bonds out there, each with a ton of different characteristics. Additionally, they require a lot of money to purchase, and because of this, active trading in bonds is typically meant for people who do it professionally and have the backing of a lot of money and or investors. Because of this, most bonds are traded directly between institutions like banks and mutual funds. This is done in what we call over-the-counter market, or you'll see it abbreviated as OTC market. It's not through an exchange. Now remember, stocks were exchange traded, and bonds are OTC traded. Now in an exchange, you can see everything that happens and what other people do, but the OTC market is not nearly as transparent. It'd be kind of like if you called a friend up and sold some of your furniture to him. So typically, when we trade bonds, we do so through mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs. And if you don't know what these are, that's fine, because we're going to explore them in part two of the Amped Up Basics. This is part one. Now I'm going to end this section on bonds with a quick uh, story of my second year on Wall Street. So my second year on Wall Street, I actually traded U.S. Treasuries, or bonds. And it was a really fun and exciting time. I mean, when you look at sort of people yelling at each other, stuff like that, that's, that's pretty much what my time was like. And I remember my second week on the job, I got yelled at for 14 straight hours. I mean, people were shouting, pounding their keyboards, keys flew off their keyboards. It was just a ridiculous environment. And some days you would just forget to eat lunch. Like, I probably lost a few pounds just by forgetting to eat lunch because you were just so amped up on adrenaline. And I remember like you would have to ask every time before you went to go up to get to the go to the bathroom. So it was like you're almost asking for permission before you could go to the bathroom. And uh, I remember one time I had to pull an all-nighter on, on the trading desk when the U.S. presidential election happened. So, you know, whereas stocks and bonds issued by companies, they're often moved by announcements by the companies. Bonds issued by governments are often moved by political events or sort of events happening to that country whether it's things like war, political events, foreign affairs, all that sort of stuff. So I remember I just hadn't slept at all, and we were all expecting this big thing to happen uh, when the president, the presidential election winner got announced. But when it happened, like nothing happened. It was so anticlimactic. Uh, but the following year, I ended up trading bonds again uh, globally at a hedge fund, but we took a more quantitative approach, so it was a lot more relaxed. I remember I actually got sleep during those times, and I, I think the most, one of the most impactful moments for me was when I no longer had to ask to go to the bathroom. Uh, those were pretty good times. Anyway, we finished up on bonds, and we're just going to quickly discuss something called commodities, which are gold, silver, all that sort of fun stuff. When I first started investing, I used to see the price of oil on the screen, and I always used to wonder, how do people measure the price, the change in price of oil so quickly? I mean, how do they do it so rapidly? And so I'm just going to touch upon commodities a little bit here. So you aren't like me when I first started wondering what that was all about. Now, not only can you trade oil, 
You can also trade things like live cattle. So there are a ton of commodities you can actually trade. Now, typically we think of gold, silver, oil, maybe natural gas, but you can also trade cocoa, which is used in chocolate, coffee, hogs, corn, and even orange juice. So these are all traded through an instrument that people call, or we all call, futures. Now, this is simply a contract that says at a future date, you're going to buy this commodity like gold. Now, right now, it's March 2015, but let's say I wanted to buy a type of crude oil called WTI. Let's say right now it's March 2015. Let's say I wanted to buy a July 2015 contract. So I'm buying a contract that says, I agree when July 2015 comes around, I will buy a thousand barrels of crude oil. Now, you may be wondering where I'm getting the thousand, the number a thousand barrels from. Well, that's specified in the contract. So you know how we mentioned previously how stocks are all unified and that lets us trade them on exchanges? The same is true of these futures. They're all unified, so they're exchange traded. Each commodity has its own contract and the contract for WTI, crude oil, specifies a thousand barrels. Now, if you see the price of oil on TV, typically they're quoting the futures price. So they're quoting the price per barrel for a thousand barrels. And because these contracts are exchange traded, it's easy to see the price fluctuations for these commodities. It's just like looking up the price of a stock. And finally, I just want to mention that trading these commodities does offer benefits for people. Now, say you're a corn farmer and you need to plan your expenses for the next year. Well, because the price of corn may fluctuate a lot, you may want to lock in a price right now so you can plan your budget. So in order to do so, you may go to the market and you may sell a corn future. This way, you know when the contract settles, you'll be able to ship out your corn for the price you sold your contract for. So you're saying, I am going to ship corn out on this specific day in the future for this price, and I'm going to lock it in right now. Now let's say at the same time, you just want to speculate on the price of corn. You want to buy a corn contract because you think it's going to go up, but you don't actually want the corn, you don't want to own the corn. You don't want the corn grower, you don't want the farmer shipping corn to your house. If you do want corn shipped to your house, that would be called taking delivery. Now, since you're just thinking you just want to speculate in corn, you just want to buy corn because you think the price will go up, you want to make sure you sell out of that contract before July 15 rolls around. And if you don't do that, you're going to get a call from somebody asking where you want the corn delivered to. So with that, I hope you enjoyed part one of the Amped Up Basics. And if you have any feedback, please email me at rishi at tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot com. In the next episode, part two of the Amped Up Basics, we're going to talk about mutual funds, index funds, ETFs, and so on.